IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we induct six new albums into the IndieCast Hall of Fame. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's shopping on Black Friday for emo-themed holiday sweaters. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I know that you mean that as a joke, and yet two days ago, my wife did show me that Pedro the Lion does have a Christmas sweater. Because, uh, you know, at work, oh God, I'm just reminded that in December, on every Friday, we're expected to wear, um, you know, holiday sweaters. So oh. yeah, I, I might just get oh, like 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 an ugly sweater. Is that the thing? Like, are we still doing the ugly Christmas sweater thing? See, you got to get in touch with office culture. This is this is where I come <laughs> into play. But yeah, that oh, we do that. I have a Charlie Brown one. I think I have a Simpsons one. So um, you know, most years I buy something on Amazon and just return it. And take advantage of uh, Mr. Bezos's very generous uh, return policy. But might get this one. I love it. I love. Picturing you in the office, wearing your ugly sweater, people just getting a kick out of how wacky the sweater is. You know, that just being a big laugh. We've got like a lot of mileage out of that as a culture, <laughs> the ugly sweater thing. Because I feel like that started in the 90s. I remember doing that in college. We'd have Christmas parties and you'd wear an ugly sweater uh, to uh, yeah. the party. And it was very 90s. Very quote marks around everything. You know, we were being very ironic. And you think it would have ended after the 90s because that was a very ironic era. And then things weren't as, you know, things were more earnest after that. But, you know, the ugly sweater thing, it spans time. It spans decades. Mm -hmm. And moreover, I'm just thinking about uh, the same thing with listening to, like, Journey at a party. Uh, Like that, apparently, like, people ended up taking that seriously so uh yeah a lot of a lot of things that i thought we were the only ones to do in the late 90s early 2000s in college it turns out uh, we were not that original so so yeah i i listen to journey non-ironically that's how lame i am i just enjoy <laughs> the greatest hits record it's so good um it is black friday and in the interest of that i'm going to do a plug here quick because i have a new book coming out in 2024 comes out in may of 2024 it is now available for pre-order so i've been hyping this uh so i have to do it now on the show i'll probably be doing this more uh in the new year but uh my book is called there was nothing you could do it's about bruce springsteen and born in the usa and uh, if you are familiar with my book uh, this isn't happening which was about kid a this book is in the style of that book it's taking that approach, but applying it to a much different artist. But, you know, looking at the artist, but putting him in a bigger context, writing about how America has changed since Born in the USA came out 40 years ago, how rock music changed. Anyway, if you like my books, please consider pre-ordering this one. And yes, you can give a pre-order to someone as a Christmas gift <laughs> or a or a Hanukkah gift or whatever it is that you celebrate this time of year. I'm saying right now, a pre-order is a great gift to give. Give them a little piece of paper saying, hey, I can't give you anything right now, but you will get this in like six months. <laughs> I think people love that kind of gift. They like 
not getting something in the moment. They like waiting a half year for their gift. So uh, again, my book again pre order right now. Okay, that's the end of that plug. Yeah, not sit out in six. Announcing it now, out in six months. This is like a 1975 level length rollout. This is what you do. You gotta, you know, <laughs> when you are when you're hawking books, you you talk about the pre-sale early on because if you get good pre-orders that dictates how much muscle the publisher puts behind the book if there's like a lot of pre-orders they're more likely to give it more attention booksellers care more about books that have good pre-orders it's a you know it's a weird thing it's like oh yeah we're we're going to support the thing that doesn't need as much help you know <laughs> but they like to know that people want to buy the book so they're like oh a lot of pre-orders Okay, we're more willing to put the book on our shelves. So, this is how the game is played, Ian. As you are entering the book publishing industry, <laughs> yeah, okay. you gotta start. You gotta start dancing early on yeah. in the process. We're putting so. y'all onto some game here, like uh, the free of charge. Yeah, you know, it's like how you know they're they're putting out movie trailers now for uh, movies that are going to be out in the summertime. This is the same kind of thing. Did you see that trailer for um, Madam Web? I think it's called. Like that Marvel movie with Dakota Johnson. I, I know, uh, I know it exists. I haven't seen it yet. Um, and I don't even know who Madam Web is. It's like <laughs> so the remember like some guys of the of the Mar- of the MCU. <laughs> yeah, they're they're going really deep with the MCU. I, from what I could ascertain from the trailer, it's a woman whose dad was killed by another guy <laughs> who was studying radioactive spiders in the amazon and now dakota johnson is going to sort of shepherd this generation of like female spider women Hmm. i think that's the concept uh i know sydney sweeney's in it like she's one of the spider women i don't know it looks awful (laughs) that's all i know the trailer was awful um by the way this is a banked episode uh ian and i are recording this a week ahead of time Hopefully there's no big music news. Hopefully Madam Web hasn't been canceled uh, from the summer slate, rendering that little digression uh, irrelevant. Um, so yeah, we are. That's why we're doing an IndieCast Hall of Fame episode. We haven't done an IndieCast Hall of Fame episode in I don't know how long. I think March of this. It was Jan. I, I looked. Uh, I looked through our past uh, episodes to just get a collection of things that we already inducted, so we have no repeats. And I don't think we we've, we've done like only one other one this year, which is really impressive because I feel in the past years, um, you know, we kind of lean on those pretty heavy. And despite the fact there aren't as many uh, big albums to discuss in 2023 as there was in years past, I feel like that's just the, that's just a show of our show's strength. Well, you know, it's because we're bringing in sports cast. We're bringing in MCU talk right (laughs) now. Uh, You know, we're we're really broadening our horizons, but this is a good uh, episode to do on a holiday week, you know, Ian and I are going to be busy eating turkey and, and shopping for emo themed sweaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we don't have time to record the episode during the actual holiday week. We're doing it a little bit early and it's just a good excuse to talk about IndieCast hall of fame. I'm actually excited to talk about the albums that I am inducting. I'm sure you're excited about the albums you're inducting. Um, this is also kind of like the calm before the storm mm-hmm. right now, because next week we're going to be, Diving headlong into year-end album list time, and 
we're going to be doing that on our show. We're going to have the indie casties, of course. Everyone's looking forward to that. Um, what's your feeling right now about these lists? There's been a few lists that have come out already, but the the lion's share are going to be dropping next week and and after that. Like, like, who are the contenders right now? Who do you think is going to dominate in the weeks ahead? So I think this year, um, you know, on the 10th anniversary of Beyonce's, like, self-titled, which dropped, like, really late in the year, I think we're going to see um, a real test of, like, whether people consider 2023, like, the, re- the people are more, um, you know, taking note of the years of release or the year of impact because – I think SZA's SOS, um, you know, another major Grammy nominee, uh, is going to perform quite well for ones that didn't put it on 2022. I think Boy Genius mm. is really going to... Um, wait, wait, so because SZA dropped what? That was like mid-December? Yeah, it yeah, it, it, it did not make Pitchfork's... Uh, it did not drop in time to make Pitchfork's best of list. That I know that. So you think that they're going to do the thing where they're like, well, we're going to count late December just because we published our list too early. Like, we're going to pretend <laughs> that SOS is a 2023 album just because we ran our list early. Do you think they're going to do that kind of thing? Well, I mean, I, I know with decade lists, um, for example, like Sigur Rós's, uh, I, I'm not even going to bother pronounce it. It was like released technically in 99, but Year of Impact was 2000. So I think that you're going to mm. see that on a few lists. Um, Caroline Polachek is going to do well. I think Boy Genius Olivia Rodrigo, those are like, I I feel more confident than ever that those are going to be like interchangeable at one and two. Um, I do like how the ones that have been released so far, and you hear grumblings already. It's like, I can't, people are releasing year end list before Thanksgiving, but it's like print only magazines, like Uncut Mojo. And I love how on brand they are. Like they have, Uncut has Lancome. I believe that was one of your recommendation corner joints at number one. Mojo has it at number three. Also, Paul Simon, Wilco, PJ Harvey. I imagine PJ Harvey will do quite well for herself. Um, I also appreciate how Decibel, which is a metal magazine, their number one is a band called Horrendous, and the album is called Ontological <laughs> Mysterium, which I, I, I saw them. Like, that's a great number one pick. Number two was Tomb Mold, which might have been number I bet they put that at number two because no, that's an album that Pitchfork liked. We can't have that at number one. Oh man. I, I mean, is there any sense of like, okay, horrendous, you're trying too hard. <laughs> you're you're trying too hard. Like, wouldn't it be funny if there was like a uh, a metal band called the Cupcakes or something? Oh, I'm you know, sure, something that was yeah. <laughs> so not badass, but their music was badass. I feel like that needs to be the direction that some band goes in. Well, apparently Deaf Heaven did that by having just like a pink album cover. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, we were talking before we started recording about the Andre 3000 flute album, mm-hmm. whose album title I always forget because I just want to call it the flute album. Yeah. Do you remember the album New title? Blue Sun. Like the, al- the song it. titles are like <laughs> just like completely off the chain, but like the album, New Blue Sun, it's like, yes, if I didn't know anything about the person who made it and I just saw the cover and the album title, I'm thinking, yeah, New Age Spiritual Jazz Album. So as we're talking about it, the album came out today. So I, I've dabbled in it so far, and I think uh, you've dabbled in it a bit. Mm-hmm. And by the time this posts, we may have been fully immersed in this record. You and I were talking about the possibility of this record almost going in the opposite direction of like how people initially responded to it. Like When this album was first announced, there was a lot of grumbling about, oh, like 
I wish Andre 3000 was making a rap record and not this spiritual jazz record. And now it feels like we're going in the opposite direction where there seems to be an inclination to like really praise this album. Mm -hmm. Like people really want to show how open and supportive they are of Andre 3000 moving in this direction. And I just wonder if because of the timing of this record, do you think this is going to sneak in at the top (laughs) of lists? Because people are just going to be like, I listened to this once and I actually like it more than I expected. I'm going to put it at number eight on my list. And then they never listen to it again. But they just need that one listen to get it to like number eight. Like the number eight slot is always the (laughs) album where maybe you're reaching a little bit. You're like, you know, I don't know if I love this album, but I think I might love it in the future. So I'm going to put it on my list. I'm gambling with this spot. Like the number eight spot, I feel like is always the album for that. And I, I feel like Andre 3000 could be positioning himself for like the number eight slot on a, on a lot of lists that we're going to be seeing in the upcoming weeks. Well, I'm going to gently push back and say that it's for me, it's always the number nine slot. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Eight or nine. <laughs> yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. Like one of those slots it's like, is like kind of like the, the reach. Yeah. Like you're reaching a little bit. You're like, or maybe it's the album that you have listened to a lot but you feel like maybe isn't reputable enough to go up higher. Yeah, you're right. That's you know? actually, the, that's the number nine. That's for me the number nine. The one where it's like I listen to this more than others, even though it might not actually be good. But number eight is the kind of wild card. So right. you are absolutely correct on that. So like number nine is actually like number three. It should be <laughs> like number three, but it's at number nine. And number eight should maybe be number 27. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that's where Andre 3000 is going to be sort of talking himself into that spot here or fluting his way into that spot, I should say, uh, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, I think that, like, I mean, there, I, I would say that there is more uh, generosity towards, you know, spiritual jazz, ambient flute, things like that. And, you know, it's like, oh, this is good, but, like, oh, this is actually great. I do see that tide turning a bit. And, you know, this does happen in most years. We'll see. We'll, we'll see how, like, I, I can't wait to see the reviews just to see like how people expand beyond, oh wow, this is really bold of him to put out a 80 minute uh, flute jazz album. And you know, you don't even hear a lot of recognizable flute in the first 30 minutes. It's like that's the thing about it. I was like, wait a second, where's the flute? I think it's electric I'm not flute. A lot of, uh, right. It's very low key. You, I mean, because when you when you think flute, you're thinking of these like sort of swirling like Sufjan, yeah, of flutes or yeah, uh, yeah, or, or you know, like what the what the jazz flute records are from the '70s. Yeah. Like when you listen <laughs> to that kind of stuff, it's more sort of swirling in there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's. I mean, I was listening to it this morning, and I had the reaction I was just talking about before that I think a lot of people are going to have. I was like, oh, I'm actually enjoying this more than maybe I would have expected. It feels like a, you, know, you mentioned spiritual jazz. It felt more like sort of like a like an ambient yeah. type record to me. Like you put it on, and it, and it creates a mood. And and if you just let it envelop you, you know, the sort of collective impact of it is maybe worth than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I'm definitely going to listen to this more than uh, Idlewild or like the last Big Boy solo album, <laughs> which is to say like twice or three times tops. A lot of Idlewild talk on this show lately. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been good. Uh, let's do a quick mailbag before we get into the IndyCast Hall of Fame. Uh, thank you 
again for writing us. It's always great to hear from our listeners. You can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, Ian, you want to uh, read this one? Sure. All right. Hey, Stephen and Ian. Just wanted to share up front that I'm 24 and listen to the show Smile Emoji. So this is See? Oh. yeah, this is in reference to the fact that we Zoomer. all... Yeah, Zoomers. Well, if you're a Zoomer and you listen and you write in and you say you're a Zoomer, <laughs> yeah. and, and you could actually be like a 47-year-old person, but if you just say you're a Zoomer, we're going to probably read your letter. <laughs> but anyway... All right. In the best of 1998 episode, okay, so this person, we're talking about music older than them. Uh, Steve mentioned David Berman possibly attaining a Towns Van Zant's type of status. In my mind, I associate a few other artists with that kind of persona. Excellent songwriters who wrote bleak country Americana blues-inspired music were embraced by the indie community and often died tragic deaths. In my list of this type of artist, I would, of course, have Towns and Berman, but I would also add Mark Linkus slash Sparkle Horse and Jason Molina. Are there any other artists you guys would add to that list? Are there other artists you see being added to it in the future? Not necessarily in a macabre who's going to die first way. Thanks, Josie from <laughs> West Des Moines, Iowa. It's a great uh, Mountain Goats title. Uh, West Des Moines? Yeah. I didn't know that, like, there was a West Des Moines. Like, that's a set apart as a separate town that's interesting to me um well okay it is awkward to talk about living singer songwriters <laughs> in this way because you if you're going to be comparing them to like a towns van zandt or a david berman you're inevitably going to be having that macabre who's going to die first type situation i mean in terms of like artists who are sadly no longer with us i mean elliot smith is another obvious mm -hmm. example i think that you would put uh, into this category um you know he comes immediately to mind uh you know and there's others but you know i i was thinking about this in a broader way not necessarily like an artist who dies young and that's why they're why they're mythic but like these artists who are enigmatic mm -hmm. you know like they pop up and they drop like a masterful album and then they disappear, you know, and that was someone that's like who David Berman was before he passed. I mean, he was not a guy who was online. He was, you know, very <laughs> sort of mysterious guy. Like before that purple mountains record, there was, I believe a 10 year gap where he didn't put out any music and really no one knew anything about like what he was up to. Um, so in that sense, I think about someone like Fiona Apple, you know, uh, who I, she's not in the Americana space, but she is someone who, you know, you could see her putting out an album next week, or you could see her putting out an album in five years. You know, we really have no read on who Fiona Apple is, but she's a person that when she arises suddenly and puts out a record, it, it tends to really blow people's minds and get them excited. Um, I also thought of someone... Like Adrienne Linker, I think being in that space as well, she is much more prolific than Fiona Apple is. But she's another one who uh, I think understands the meaning of mystique and how even though she's putting all these records, you don't really know much about her. You know, because there's a lot of singer-songwriters now who are, are so visible, you know, you don't really have a chance to like wonder about them because they're like so in your face. And... There's like some obvious examples I won't even mention because I think they're so obvious. But um, she seems like she cuts against the grain of that in an interesting way that I think is sort of like mythos burnishing potentially over the long haul. Mitski, I think, is another one. Like she, I think, 
she had to back away just because her fans were so crazy. But you know, she's really become a more mysterious figure in the last you know several years, and I feel like that's also fed into how people listen to her music and and where she's at. So again, they're not strictly Towns Van Zant type singer songwriters, but they feel to me like they could potentially have that kind of mythos about them in 20 years. Yeah, I, I like how you answered the question in a less literal way than I did. Um, because, you know, when I think about these artists, you know, you're trying to say like not in a macabre who's going to die first sort of way. But I think a lot of the magic of, not the magic, but the meaning and the profundity of a lot of Sparkle Horse and Jason Molina stuff is that like death seemed to stalk them, you know. Especially with Mark Linkus, who... You know, Good Morning Spider is about like a near-death experience. And um, it's interesting to think about the artists who are operating in that same sort of genre of Americana, country, blues-inspired music. I think Mitski's new album kind of gets in there. Maybe Angel Olsen you could throw in there as well. But the I think the difference, you know, with the artists Steve mentioned and the ones who are playing it nowadays is that they don't seem as visibly troubled, you know? You could say like someone like MJ Lenderman makes music in that realm, but you know, their persona is far more different. Um, an obvious descendant uh, is Joe D'Agostino of Empty Country. Uh, he had a very public uh, mentor-mentee relationship with David Berman. And I think Empty Country, I don't know if it has the same sort of um, you know critical credibility or mass critical credibility that Sparkle Horse and uh, you know Magnolia Electric Country company songs Ohio did in real time um and i also think one of the more illustrative uh you know answers to this question just to see the difference between the 90s and now is uh tim showalter of strand of oaks uh he had a song called jm on uh his breakthrough album heel and i think him and joe and maybe mj lenderman to a degree um kind of saw their you know heroes as not models, but like cautionary tales. Like I think they've tailored their public persona in a way to cut against the grimness of their music. Same with like, I guess like someone like Jason Isbell. Yeah. I mean, we're just way more sensitive about mental health issues now Mm. than people were in the nineties. I think in the nineties, there was this tendency to uh, look at people who are troubled and, either glamorize it or make fun of it. You know, like, oh, get over yourself. You know, what, why do you, why are you complaining? You're, you're so rich and famous. You don't have reason to be upset or wow. It's so awesome that you are, you know, into drugs and alcohol and, you know, keep pushing it, you know, cause this is something we're enjoying that I think was a more common attitude. And I think now, thankfully people are more sensitive about, uh, looking at these, behaviors as manifestations of of mental illness and how it doesn't have to be this way you can treat these things you can get help and you can move into a safer space and and still make great music so it's bad for mythology perhaps but it's good for people and i think that's a good (laughs) balance to to achieve uh there uh all right let's get into our indycast hall of fame and like we were saying earlier we haven't we've been neglecting the hall of fame we have not been inducting uh, new albums. Uh, we haven't done it, I guess, now for about eight months, which is an incredibly long gap. So that's why we're doing a few more albums than usual. I think we usually do four, mm-hmm. two a piece, but we're doing six in this episode. 
And again, the idea here is that we're talking about albums that we love and also albums that we feel like are maybe a little unsung. They're not talked about as much as we feel like they should be. Uh, I think that the uh, baseline that we use is, has Pitchfork done a Sunday <laughs> review on any of these albums? You know, like that's like one rule of thumb here that we that we use uh, to talk. But yeah, just albums we love that we want to kind of put back out into the world and encourage people to check out. So why, why don't you go first? What is your first IndieCast inductee? IndieCast Hall of Fame inductee. So we're going to go 90s, uh, 2000s, 2010s on this episode, at least with my choices. And I, I scoured our past episodes just to make sure we didn't do this one because I, I'm like, it's only a matter of time. And I'm like a little worried that when I bring this up, like you're going to have it too. But um, this is a very 90s piece of proto IndieCast core, uh, which is Grant Lee Buffalo's Mighty Joe Moon. Uh, Ooh, yeah. See, yeah. Good, good call. Um, and so you won't, you won't repeat any of my albums, by the way, because all my <laughs> albums are from the same year. I'll just say that oh, right cool. now. We'll get into it when we talk about my nom- my inductees here. But yeah, there won't be any repeats. This is an album though that I would have considered putting in for sure. Yeah, when you say I'm not, you're not going to have any overlap. That means you're just picking stuff from a year before 1994. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I am. Oh shit. Okay, so yeah, this album. Like, I, I don't want to say, like, had a moment this year, but it did kind of, uh, it had a little bit of a moment when the biggest song that they did, uh, Mockingbirds, had a appearance on the show Beef, one of the many great needle drops on that show. And um, this is a fascinating record because it's extremely 90s, but, like, not in the way where you would have, if you were to have, like, a 90s-themed party uh, you would think, oh, that's Grant Lee Buffalo. Uh, they're of our time, but not tied to it. And it's a, it, so why is it proto IndieCast core? Well, for one thing, even though they're from LA, uh, they also it's on Sire Reprise, which is you know extremely '90s label. Um, it's you know they're from LA, but they're very much uh, a heartland rock band in the sense that they're really. Um, interested in the mythology of old America, obviously by the name, like Grant Lee Buffalo. Um, and you know, there's um, uh, the first song in this album, Lone Star Song, is about the Waco, is about the Branch of Indian Church. Um, they are alt rock for sure. I mean, when you listen to Lone Star Song and sing along, those are kind of like not grunge, but grungy. I actually saw them open for REM on the Monster Tour. So. You know, just to give you a sense of like where they were in the scope of alternative rock. But it also has like a very dreamy kind of Brit pop sort of mode to it as well. Like uh, their first album, Fuzzy, was the album covers a blatant Smith's homage. Um, There's a little bit of like glam rock going on too. Um, Very theatrical vocals, almost like a Jeff Buckley style. Like uh, Grantley Phillips, one of my favorite vocalists of the 90s. Um, and you know, the songs have a mystique to them, but they are also grounded in specificities. The, honestly, the closest analog I can think of in the modern day would be something like wild pink, Uh, pulling from very similar ideas, very similar, uh, interests in terms of lyricism and, uh, you know, influences and, um, yeah, it's just like a special album that sounds like literally nothing else I can think of. Um, there, there's subsequent albums. Copperopolis, 
things get a little more uh, vaporous on that album. It's a lot more dreamy. Uh, and then they make a complete sellout album in, in, two, in 1998 called Jubilee, which I like a few songs on it, but it's a ve- that's a very 1998 album. Just give another shout out to Riley Walker, friend of the pod. He's a massive Grantley Buffalo fan. He's always guaranteed to chime in when I do some Mighty Joe Moon talk on the uh, timeline. Yeah, this record I like a lot, and it's actually related to one of the albums I'm going to be inducting, too. I would say the same thing about that, where you have folky elements, but unlike a lot of records now that are singer-songwriter oriented or have like a folky type vibe, I feel like a lot of records like that point inward now, and they sound small, Mm -hmm. and this is a record that is like really big sounding, and I, I love that combination of maybe a more traditional type milieu but you're also playing it like you are in an arena and it sounds huge and the emotions are big and it's very uplifting and uh yeah this record is great the wild pink comparison i think is totally spot on good choice i like that one for my first inductee and i'll just say you know i picked albums all from the same year and it wasn't something i did going into it thinking i was going to do that but like Two of the albums that I picked were from 1988. Hmm. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Two albums from 1998. Is there another album from 1998 that I could induct? <laughs> and then I found something else really quickly that I was like, oh, yeah, I'll totally induct this one. So I'm going straight 1988 for my picks uh, for this class of the IndyCast Hall of Fame. And my first pick is a band, you know, we talk on the show sometimes, like when we get into year-end list time, where we talk about bands or or records that we loved this year, that we got into this year, that didn't come out this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we all have that. We all, because, you know, no one just listens to music that's brand new. You're always discovering stuff from the past, and that takes over your life. And for me, a band that would be at the top of that list for like an older band that was like a huge deal for me this year is the go-betweens. And this is a band from Australia. Uh, They were big in the eighties, broke up, got together again in the two thousands and then uh, broke up again because Mm -hmm. one of the uh, main songwriters in the band, Grant McClellan uh, passed away of a heart attack at the age of 48. Um, But back in the eighties, you know, these records I was familiar with, but I didn't really dig in until this year. This was like my big go-between discovery period. And the album that I think stands out the most came out in 1998. It was their swan song of the original run for this band, and it's called 16 Lovers Lane. And this album, I don't, are you familiar with this record? Yeah, um, the, uh, yeah I'm, I'm familiar with this record. The Go-Betweens is a... Um, you know, your town, what streets of your town? That's a great fucking yeah. song. Um, yeah, that's like the big pop song on this record. Yeah, and it's funny because when I was thinking about this album, and this is also true of another album on my list, I thought, well, is this like too well known for the IndyCast Hall of Fame? Is it too celebrated? But then I went back to the Paz and Jop list of nineteen ninety of nineteen eighty eight. This album isn't on that list. Huh. There's Forty albums on this list. This album isn't on there. None of my albums <laughs> from eighty eight are on that list. Um, which is shocking to me because I think there is, uh, you know, a groundswell. I think a bit for this record. Although I, I feel like the ground, the, the go between still are not a band that are discussed as much now as they could be. And this record in particular, I think, 
is a total masterpiece of of, of pop songwriting. Uh, again, you have two songwriters in this band. I mentioned uh, Grant McClellan before. There's also uh, Robert Forster is the other songwriter, and they have like this Lennon McCartney type dynamic where where Grant is like the McCartney figure. He's writing all these you know just great pop songs like Streets of Your Town. And then Robert Forster is the more arty guy. If you look at music videos from this time, he's like sometimes wearing like makeup hmm. in the band, so he kind of has like a like a Brian Ferry uh, type vibe to him. Um, and he's writing like the moodier songs. So you have Streets of Your Town, and then you have like Robert Forster songs like Clouds that are just beautiful. But they really complement each other well on this record, and it's just two great songwriters going back and forth. Lots of acoustic guitars, very lush type vibe, very kind of like almost like a dream pop type vibe, mm-hmm. but with I think a stronger sense of songwriting and uh, great lyrics as well. And look, their whole '80s catalog I think is worth reinvestigating. I've been really into it this year, but this album in particular I think total masterpiece. Feels a little bit like a lost masterpiece in terms of younger audiences. I don't know if people have gone back and gone to this record specifically but they should so i'm inducting it into the indycast hall of fame 16 lovers lane by the go-betweens yeah that's a great album i'm like the go-betweens is kind of a uh blind spot for me i know they're like very well regarded by you know a certain type of music critic and i think there's a lot of influence on like modern day australian indie rock by the oh totally yeah and by the way i'm looking at the 1988 paz and jop was not was what up dog number six michelle shocked Tracy Chapman at number three. Public Enemy, it takes a nation of millions at number one. I agree with that. But yeah, this is fat. And Tracy Chapman, that's a great record yeah, too. I mean, totally. But yeah, but there's like a lot of like, oh, Graham Parker's eighth album is on <laughs> Keith the list. Richards' like, Talk is Cheap at number eight. <laughs> that's a good That's a good record too. But like, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of great records from 88, including my next two that I'm inducting that are not on the list. It's kind of shocking. All right, so the uh, album I'm going to talk about is, you know, I think the people who liked our first two albums would like this one, but it comes from a pretty different uh, style of music. Now, you know me, you know uh, some of the uh, genre, some of the sub-genres that I've made up that I'm into. You know, there's Chill Wave, there's Emo, of course, and another one that I always love to dip back into is the post-Kid A Brit Rock of like, let's say early 2000s when, um, you know, Kid A came out, obviously a lot of people loved it, saw it as revolutionary, but then there were many other people who kind of wished like, uh, we could really use another, uh, okay computer or even better the bends. Um, and I would say that this band is maybe the second most enduring of the bunch, uh, you know, behind Coldplay, of course, and that would be elbow. Um, and I want to talk about their second album, 2003's cast of thousands now i think this band has made consistently good they've not made a bad album and they still release albums pretty consistently i think their last one came out in like 2021 or something like that uh their first album was also a candidate that's asleep in the back it's a kind of a talk talk catherine wheel combination i listened to it Whenever I got like, whenever I came home like drunk on my last uh, year of college, I listened to Sleep in the Back, which means I listened to it almost every single night. But uh, this album is more of a kind of a streamlined, stripped down, even though it has a gospel choir <laughs> on the first song. And it's this interesting um, sort of anomaly in the world of, let's say, Travis and Coldplay and Star Sailor. 
in that uh, you know Guy Garvey has just like a really rich and resonant voice, and he sounds like an adult. I think a lot of the issues with this uh, era of music is that it sounded like just entirely wimpy. Uh, but Guy Garvey wrote a lot about you know just like like romantic troubles, but there was also like this air of like sexuality and violence to what he wrote, which made it a little more unnerving. Um, and they also do a lot of really interesting things with production as well. Um, this is the point, like when we move on to like 2005 and 2008 elbow, when they actually got kind of big with a day like this, which I think was like a song that was used for the Olympics, they didn't get cringy, but they did get kind of corny. Like I think guy gar in the same way that like the Menzingers, like, Oh, I see a waitress having a cigarette outside the all night diner. I'm going to write 50 songs about that. Uh, elbow, can do that with like oh i saw a picture of you know my the town which i grew up as a child and i'm gonna write 20 songs about that but cast of thousands is um it really sticks the landing in terms of giving you that sort of warm uh dreamy 2003 uk rock sound but also doing so in a way that they seemed a lot more older and mature than their peers so if you still have an itch to listen to like you know rush of blood to the head era Coldplay or uh, the man who era Travis, but wanted to sound a little less, um, you know, bedwetter, uh, Col- uh, cast of thousands. It really, it's a really it's similar to mighty Joe moon. It it's of its time, but not locked into it. And I think it still holds up really well. All right. So my second inductee into the IndyCast hall of fame, this is the album that I would liken maybe a bit to mighty Joe moon, the Grantley Buffalo record you mentioned earlier. And uh, that record is Fisherman's Blues by the Water Boys. And this is a record that, uh, again, I feel like in certain quarters, this record is really revered. I mean, it's a record that is popular enough to have a box set devoted to it that is like literally like eight discs long. It's just like an enormous box set just for this one album. And the thing about this record is that the Water Boys... Were, well, first of all, the Waterboys were this band. I'll call them a pan-European band because <laughs> they were formed in London. The lead singer, Mike Scott, is from Scotland. And they have like a lot of Irish people in the band. And there's sort of an Irish flavor to a lot of their music. So it's all over Europe, really, that this band is drawing from. And they started out as this really vibey 80s alt-rock type band. Uh, they described their music as the big music. And they were in the same vein as like early U2 and Big Country and Simple Minds, like those sort of like big sounding 80s type rock bands. And the Waterboys in particular, uh, if you're looking at like the impact they've had on modern rock music, I I think the most obvious example would be the War on Drugs. Uh, Those early Waterboys records, I think, are, are big influences on what Adam Granducial ended up doing in the War on Drugs. I think his vocal style too is very influenced by Mike Scott. Like all the woo, like that <laughs> thing is so Mike Scott. It's taken from him. With Fisherman's Blues, uh, Waterboys took like a hard left turn. They got away from the vibey rock thing and they really embraced traditional music. So they're playing like traditional, like Celtic music. They're going into folk music. There's a country music thing going on. And on that box set, which really is like a wonderful box set. Like they're basically doing like their own version of the basement tapes. Like it's all these musicians getting together and just playing 
any song that comes into their head. So they're doing like Bob Dylan songs. They're doing Hank Williams songs. They're doing traditional folk songs, traditional Irish songs, you know, waltz type songs. Just a tremendous amount of music. And you can hear that vibe on the record because the record sounds very live. It's very loose. They're pulling from like a lot of different music styles. And the great thing about it is similar to the Grantley Buffalo record is that even with those folky elements and it, it, it's a, and Fisherman's Blues is a much folkier record than the Grantley Buffalo record, but like they're playing it like a rock band, you know, they, they're playing it with a band that still has that big music mentality. So, you know, it's not this sort of insular small sounding, like we're on a back porch type vibe. It is like, we've got a ton of musicians and we're going to make a big mystical sound and it's so intoxicating and it's so good and um yeah i just feel like this record it's kind of like what i want folk music to be again i feel like a lot of folky type singer songwriters now they play so quiet and it's so like mumbly and like whispery and it's about what sounds good in your earbuds and i want something that sounds great in the car you know or on a great stereo that just sounds enormous and that's what this record is, and I've, I've loved it for a long time. I feel like, again, it's loved in some quarters. I, I, I know Stereo Gum, I think, did like a 30-year um, retrospective of it in 2018, written by Ryan Lees. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I still feel like there's more conversation to be had about this band and this record in particular. So that's why I'm putting it in the IndyCast Hall of Fame. Fisherman's Blues by the Waterboys. Yeah, while 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 you were talking about this record, and I think they are kind of similar to the go-betweens where I hear, you know, music critics of a certain age talk about them, but I have no idea how whether or not it resonates with the younger generation. But while you were reading, while you were talking about this, on w- the list of Waterboys members has its own Wikipedia page. Uh, the Mike Scott estimates that there have been over 85 musicians who have been in this band. And he said that we've had more members, I believe than any other band in rock history and believes the nearest challengers are Santana and the fall. Right. It makes <laughs> sense. I mean, this is a band and I, I would say this for the go betweens too, that I think you're right. I think younger generations still haven't really caught up with these bands, but they absolutely would enjoy them if, if, if they plugged into it. I mean, there's certainly bands from this era that feel like they're more of the era and they don't really translate, but I, I feel like both of these bands do have footprints in the modern era. And there's an aesthetic, I mean, cause I mean, 80 sounding rock has been a predominant influence on indie bands for a while now. Mm-hmm. But it's the but same three I, ones, you know, it's Fleetwood Mac, yeah, Kate Bush talk- and like Neil Young or Tom Petty. Yeah. <laughs> Or like The Cure, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And I think that the Waterboys, they do integrate that sort of vibey rock with a more kind of folky thing. And then you have the Celtic influence coming in as well. It's really unique. And I think it translates really well in a modern context. And go-betweens are just amazing songs. Mm-hmm. So, and that, and that translates to any era. So, 1988, great year. Again, this album not on the Paz and Jop list of that year. Uh, my favorite of the 85 former Waterboys, just from a short uh, view of the former members, has to be Carlos Hercules. Uh, he played drums from 2003 to 2006 and 2009. Great drummer name. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so my third one comes uh, from the 2010s, and you know I thought we talked about this one on a previous episode, but it turns out we ran out of time. It was my third choice for that episode, but we went over uh, only two of them. And I think that we'd be absolutely talking about this band uh, if they had released an album since 2018, but they haven't. Uh, this is like straight up the middle indie cast core. Uh, I'm talking about Restorations and their 2014 album, LP3. So this brings uh, a couple of threads uh, that we talk about a lot here, which is kind of heartland rock except it's from philadelphia i think uh john the lead singer now um he lives in Asheville, which is you know another kind of indie cast thing to do to move to Asheville, north carolina but um this was a really cool album from the time of side one dummy uh that era where you know you were getting bands like pup and uh jeff rosenstock uh putting out great records on that label and uh, these guys as well. And so they come from, I mean, the, the, there's the gravelly vocals, which, you know, bring to mind bands like, say, Gaslight Anthem or the Menzingers. Um, and, but what I don't think this album does, which sets it apart from the aforementioned, is that there's some Bruce Springsteen, but not a lot. Like, they like to have, like, triple guitars on every single song. They put a little shoegaze in there as well um they have songs about you know the daily grind of work i think separate songs uh is, that should have been a classic um the video is really incredible as well and um it it just has this element of like being this kind of gritty sort of like you know street level philadelphia band but the production is just enormous um it was done by John Lowe. It's a guy who I know worked on a couple of national records. And it's an interesting record that slipped through the cracks a bit, I think, in 2014. Somewhat similar to like Symbol Z Guitars Lose, which we've talked too much about that band for it to ever be in the IndieCast Hall of Fame. I know for me, I didn't get to write about this record because I kind of had to make a little promise to some powers that be that I would kind of ease off on the emo <laughs> during that time. And it's not an emo record. There are some elements of it. Uh, they put They put out a record on Tiny Engines. Uh, in 2018 after uh, Side One Dummy imploded. Um, but, you know, good band. It's kind of like, um, uh, if you write about sports, I guarantee you'll like this band as well. And word around town is that they are working on LP5. LP4, that which came out in 2018, was quite good. Um, and, you know, all their stuff is good. It's just like a indie cast, like, recommendation corner band that we just haven't talked about because they haven't put out new music. As you were talking about this record, I just Googled quick to confirm that I wrote about this record for Grantland, and I did, and I did a profile of them, no shit. and the headline was, uh, your new favorite punk band, Restorations Keep Hope Alive. You can find that on your nearest search engine. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan of this record. Uh, you know, I would liken them to like a like an American Constantine. Yes. Like, you know, they have like that Constantine's type vibe where you have a little bit of the Springsteen, but there's also like the Fugazi element and also these other kind of musical influences that get brought in. Uh, really great band, kind of like a lost record of that time, but uh, it's still out there for you to enjoy. I totally endorse uh, that being inducted. My final record that I'm going to induct, my third record from 1988, is called Green Thoughts, and it's by a band called The Smithereens. Oh, yeah. And th <laughs> this is a band that I think I would describe as sort of like, 
a poor man's replacements. You know, like they were another band from that era that was making uh, rock music on sort of like an indie level. And then they tried to become a mainstream rock band over the course of the 80s. And they were actually a little bit more successful than the replacements were, at least in the short run. They had a radio hit in 1991 called A Girl Like You, which if you like, uh, (laughs) you know, arena rock from that time, you know that song. It's a very blustery song. It's a great song. I'm a fan of that song. You you might have heard that song in a baseball game or something. (laughs) I feel like that song still has some play out in the world. But by that time, I mean, they had really morphed into like a full-blown, like, yeah, we just sound like a more intelligent, like, Motley Crue type band. You know, like, we we write really good songs, but we have that same sort of sonic flavor, very heavy guitars, very loud, late 80s, early 90s sounding drums. But earlier in the decade, you know, they were more of this band that was really plugged into the Beatles. Like, they'd have Beatlesque rockers balanced out with, like, ballads that kind of sound like Elvis Costello songs, especially, you know... Him working in that, like, more croonery type mode of, like, Almost Blue or that song Shipbuilding. You know, like, that era of Elvis Costello. That was informed in the Smithereens as well. And with Green Thoughts, which came out in 88, it's kind of like a happy medium of, like, their early period and what they became later on, like, a more blustery rock band. Like, there's a lot of bluster on Green Thoughts, but it's, like, just the right amount. And there's also still that kind of brainy Elvis Costello element also being involved there as well. And I really think that this band is more influential and important than they get credit for. Again, you know, kind of going back to the thing with the Waterboys, where when people talk about 80s rock bands, they always kind of talk about the same bands. It's always R.E.M., The Smiths, The Cure. And then there's all these other bands that kind of get overlooked. I think The Smithereens are a band that, like, ends up getting overlooked by the replacements and and that kind of that kind of 80s rock band that's the thing that people care about now but the smithereens with green thoughts this is a record that was like a big influence on nirvana like they've like kurt cobain in his journal he actually writes about the record before this that the smithereens put out it's called especially for you that which came out in 86 and then there's a story like butch vig apparently like he talks about how when Nirvana was in the studio making Nevermind, one of the records they were listening to on repeat is Green Thoughts. Like, this is a record they were trying to make, which is kind of crazy to say, but you can kind of hear it. Because, again, like, what is Nevermind if not pop songs with, like, really heavy guitars and loud drums? Like, that's what that record is. It's very polished. There's that sheen to it that Kurt Cobain came to hate and reacted against when they made In Utero. But... You listen to Nevermind, and then you go back to Green Thoughts, and you're like, oh yeah, like Nevermind is just kind of like a more refined version of what the Smithereens were doing on this record. So that would be my elevator pitch for this album. I mean, aside from the fact that I think the songs are just great. And again, you have the power pop element going on, but it doesn't have that sort of mild quality that power pop can have sometimes. That sort of like very kind of like shy guy, meek sound that some power pop records have like this is like a muscular record with really good melodies uh and memorable lyrics and just the songwriting is totally on point so again this is another record i feel like is important but it gets overlooked and i want to bring it back into the conversation it's green thoughts 
by the Smithereens. Do you have any experience <laughs> with the Smithereens? I mean, I have. Uh, I, I, the The name itself, you know, immediately brings to mind a girl like you, which. I thought you were going to go in the direction when you were introducing this as like kind of a, you know, a dumbed down version of like the Bodines or something like that. Like I get, I put them in this kind of mix of late, like I don't remember if it's 80s, I don't remember if it's 90s and I don't, uh, by the way, I recommend that if you're listening to this and you have like your phone nearby, like look at the Wikipedia uh, picture for the Smithereens. It, it, it's from them in 2009. It's the most New Jersey picture from 2009 you could imagine um but i, I yeah i have yeah, no i mean they were like a bar band i think at that point i mean like this again they were a band that like they had that hit but then that was about it and then they just became i think almost like a regional band after that they would probably play a lot in the northeast and they had their fans but they never really had their moment even though i think that that the albums they made before that are really good and I mean, I know what you mean about the Bo Deans thing, but I think a girl like you is more Bo Deans-ish. Mm-hmm. But like the that's where they evolved to. Like they started out in a different place that was more I think in a replacements type vein. Yeah. That like straight ahead rock band that uh is slightly left to center, but like they want to get into the mainstream. And Again, in the short run, they were like a little more successful, I think, than, than the replacements were. Because the replacements never had a song like A Girl Like You. You know, like that kind of like ubiquitous radio hit. They never really hit that. The Smithereens did. But then they didn't have any of the mythology of the replacements. Or the great back catalog. Yeah. You know, just kind of sustain interest for future generations. They're just like one of those bands that gets lost, you know. I think that's the common thread in both of our picks here is that you have the bands that end up sort of defining their time and they dominate the conversation when people go back and plug into new music but there's all this other stuff that was also really good that gets swallowed up and it's our job to kind of dig it out of the dustbin and and pull it back out and say no this was good you should check this out yeah i think that like the when we talk about like definitive albums of a certain year it's not necessarily going to be you know the cure the replacements the big stuff it's going to be like the number 37 type album where it's like this is what it was like to be engaged with music like throughout the entire year in 1988 and also i'm looking the smithereens made a made a song with Diane Warren yeah, see, again, they really, yeah, they they really went, went for, for it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, once they got into the 90s, they were like, yeah, where do we sign to sell out? <laughs> we will do anything to become popular. I mean, A Girl Like You, I genuinely love that song. I, I think that's a great song. I think the record that that's on 11. has some stuff on it. Yeah, 11. I think that that record, I don't think, is as good as what the Smithereens did in the 80s. I think the rest of that record has some, like, real arena rock dross on it like like not in a good way like i love <laughs> arena rock stuff but like it's sort of like yeah they, they really kind of dumbed it down a lot by the time of that record wow yeah i mean like I, it's so funny like all these bands that you mentioned i love the fact that it was all from the same year because they all kind of swim around in my head as like the kind of 
you know, with all due respect, like not B team. Cause like, I think the go betweens are like one of the best bands of their era, but like, they're not the band that's going to show up in the best of the eighties list. You know, when you span it out to the decade, you include like pop and you include rap and you include like all other genres, you know, this is the stuff that eventually gets lost in the mix. But you know, uh, I, I, I love, I love all those picks. Cause like I knew of these bands, but like, I don't know shit about the smithereens besides a girl like you. You know, and sometimes I probably you, felt, thought it was like a Matthew Sweet song. Me and Kurt Cobain lost <laughs> the Smithereens. So hopefully that's enough for you all out there. We're endorsing the Smithereens, me and Kurt Cobain. Um, I think that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We're going to skip Recommendation Corner today because we just don't do that IndieCast uh, Hall of Fame Day. We just focus on the old album. So Thank you all for listening to this episode. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.